Hello and welcome to BR Football Ranks, your favourite football podcast live and direct from London in these troubled times. My name is Jack Collins and I will be your host today. And joining me as ever, the twin turbo engines of this podcast, two of the finest minds in football journalism. Firstly, Mr. Sam Tai. Hello, mate. How are you? Not too bad, mate. And yourself? Yes, I'm doing all right. I've had a good week so far. Probably the best week of self-isolation so far. It's not not particularly high bar, but I think it's been okay. You've been busy, but we will get back to that in a second after we introduce Mr. Dean Jones. How are you, my friend? I'm good, mate. Yeah, uh, used to this life now, so I think this is us for the foreseeable, isn't it? This is our life now. Yeah, into week five we are. This is our no. fifth episode recording from home. If I you do miss you guys. That. I but do miss you. Thanks, Dean. I miss you too, mate. I didn't think I would. It's a it's a funny old world we live in. Sam, you've been really busy. You've you've been on Instagram live with some footballers, haven't you? Yeah, a couple of weeks. I've done a couple now. Yesterday, so we record on the Tuesday. Monday were myself and Bernardo Silva on Instagram live. Uh, played the piano for me. Tried to recreate a goal, but got tackled by his dog in the garden. It was a lot of fun. Uh, you can watch that on YouTube as well. It's about 45 minutes long. He also has a few words to say about individual awards, which is something we're going to speak about today. So uh, contrasting opinions there and interesting to see what he feels and what an elite footballer, because he genuinely is one of those, what an elite footballer actually feels about these uh, about these kinds of awards. But yeah, that and uh, I did a piece on building the perfect passer, taking traits from all sorts of different top-level mid- uh, midfielders and, and passers of the ball to try and create a kind of kind of disgusting Terminator-like amalgamation of talent. And uh, what I created was a true horror and would definitely dominate any midfield. So I'd employ you to check that one out as well because it took me like three days. It was a very enjoyable piece. I enjoyed that pod favourite Thiago Alcantara was was nominated for an award, which which made me very happy. Yeah, I was. I actually ran a little Twitter uh, question for that to say who, who is the most aesthetically pleasing passer in football because I wanted to put Thiago but was wary of being biased basically towards a player I just really like so many people feel the same way it was it was truly heartening to see that Thiago the appreciation for his his technique and his style is widespread we must have been setting some kind of trend yes well as usual Dean what have you been up to mate uh, what have I been up to so wrote a piece end of last week spoke to Fulham manager Scott Parker and NY. CFC boss Ronnie is it Dyler or Dyler? How do you pronounce that one, Jack? Dyler, I think. I've always gone Dyler, but I could be wrong. Yeah, so I spoke to both of those guys to see how managers are coping during isolation. So that was really interesting to get their different takes from from London and New York. Um, and then since then, basically, been trying to figure out when we're going to see some football again. This is the main part of my job for this week. I'm going to write a piece that's going to get out on Wednesday or Thursday, like when we can all expect to see football back one on our tv screens and two when can we start going to games again so i'm trying to dig into that then a bit of transfer stuff as well so i've been looking at some stuff around lautaro martinez harry kane all this kind of stuff so i think we'll probably be doing a transfer piece at the end of the week as well and start doing some normal stuff again and start building up towards the return of the season absolutely and at some point dean you and i will return to craven cottage which is of course where we call home and is, let's get yeah. on to the podcast, shall we? And Sam, you've got a ranking for us. What are we going to be talking about this week? Yeah, we're doing uh, five players that should have won the Ballon d'Or in their career. Now, 
the five players that we talk about today or that I bring up are players that I, I really genuinely strongly think should have got at least one. And the fact that between them, they have zero sort of blows my mind a little bit. Now, we've talked over the last year and a half or so that we've been running this podcast about, you know, where the Ballon d'Or stakes are at the current moment, who's in pole position for 2019 or 2018 and things like that. We haven't really looked back at any point and gone, wow, how did that guy never win one? Because there have been some surprising results over the years. So to set the scene for you, first of all, I didn't just go through and sort of rank like the sec- like the best second place or third place seasons. I didn't want to pin it down specifically to those seasons, although obviously examples will be attached to each name. What we're talking about here is is five players who enjoyed illustrious long careers at the top level and at multiple points were in contention or should have been more in contention to win a Ballon d'Or and somehow did not. Into number five. Well, this guy, I reckon, is going to be ranked a little bit lower than you would expect, but I would explain myself. It's Xavi at five. Okay. What do you think? Low. Very low. He feels low, but I'm, I'm willing to hear you out. So the first draft of this list I did, Chavi was second. And when I re- when I look back over it, I dropped him to fifth. So we'll just start with start with Chavi as a player. I mean, uh, you know, as we've basically advised in our first quarantine episode, the op- this is an opportunity to go and take a look at old games and go and watch old football matches and, and re- remind yourself of some of the older players. And Chavi is one of those players. Like, he hasn't played top-level football. Well, he's retired now, but it's been six or seven years since he was at his absolute peak. That is a long time. So I've gone back and watched Chavi play, and I think I'd just sort of forgotten a little bit just how truly incredible that guy is. Like, one of the best ball retainers and passers in history, like, potentially the best in history. It's a, it's a big call over a long span. I can't, I'm not the person to make the call, but he's in that conversation. Um, no one felt the pulse of a game like him, and no one commanded play like, like he did. And he's the heartbeat of some incredible Barcelona sides. Again, arguably some of the greatest club sides of all time. He's the heartbeat of a Spanish team that won, you know, Euro 2008, World Cup 2010, and Euro 2012. He placed third in the Ballon d'Or voting in 2009 and 2010 and 2011. Now that tells you that he was in the conversation, but the voting percentages, he's, he's way off the winners there. Messi won it uh, in all three years, I think. So there's a basic acknowledgement of how good Xavi was. But I think time has told us actually he was more important than we potentially believed at the time because Barca just have come nowhere near replacing this guy. Uh, this Artur looks like a very good player and... Everyone that comes to Barca is hopefully the new Xavi, hopefully the new Iniesta, but no one has come close to this guy so far. Yeah, no, I think that's fair enough. I mean, where does he fall down then? So for the same reason that Neymar isn't on the list, Xavi is a little bit lower than you'd expect. And I think that is because, again, it's it's something that a lot of people have struggled with. His best years coincided with Messi just exploding, like just going absolutely nuts. And in that time, while we obviously appreciate that Xavi was a consistent 8 out of 10 player every every match day, more or less, and an extremely important piece of two incredible sides, Barca and Spain, he probably lacks the iconic and standout moments to really push himself into contention for one of these kinds of awards. And there are other players above him, four other players that probably do have those moments. Um, but Xavi, just because he was in the same team as Messi, I can understand. I can guess. I can. I get on board with why why he didn't fully fully put himself into the ring uh, because he didn't have that 
he doesn't have like the the moment you know Xavi doesn't have a moment he was just brilliant all the time and that sort of thing while it sounds crazy to say it can count against you in these kind of stakes and for these kind of awards in terms of you know where you see that Dean consistency then doesn't count for much because you have to highlight single periods where you know you look at uh, Messi Ronaldo and you highlight every single time what they've brought to a team in a specific moment Xavi didn't really do that he just controlled everything for years is it just an issue with individual awards that means that midfielders don't necessarily get or especially sort of midfielders that sit at the base and and, and spray the ball around don't necessarily get the individual accolades that they perhaps deserve. Really, yeah. I mean, this is, this award has undoubtedly um, been almost created for creative players because they are the ones that capture the attention. They're the ones that make the biggest headlines. They're the ones that people dream about playing like, typically. So somebody like Xavi, he's been the brain of a team that had literally some of the best players we'll ever see. But that's kind of the issue as to why he never got this award, because he was such a team player and not an individual. Yeah, it's it's so strange. Like Sam says, Barcelona could never have hit the heights they did without him. But it's only really once you have hindsight that you completely appreciate that. So I'd say he was one of the most, if not the most elegant player I've, I've seen. And I think that people that played against Barca in their prime usually pointed to Xavi and Iniesta as the players that they were most afraid of facing rather than Messi at that time. Now, that sounds strange because Messi's obviously a magician and could make them look really stupid, but it was more the case that those two and the understanding that they had and the way they kept a ball was just harrowing, basically, to, to face. <laughs> because <laughs> to, be, to be such a good football team and come up against that Barcelona team, to have got yourself to such a level that you thought you could compete against these teams and these players and then realise, actually, you were not even on their wavelength was just devastating for so many players. And, and they would literally pull teams apart with a way of thinking and a way of passing that, that was just a different level. So... Um, I do understand why Sam's put him in five. It is strange because he is one of the best footballers any of us will ever see. Um, but he's not sexy. And I think that at the time, people acknowledged that he was a great player, but he he wasn't making the front pages or the back pages every week. We weren't crowing over him like we were other players in that era. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I, I have a massive issue with this as a, a general consensus, not with Sam's picking him, because if Sam's ranking is based on whether they potentially should have won the award given the state of the current award then I don't I think it's very difficult to argue with this but I think my main issue and main gripe is I think Chavi should be higher on this list and it comes from the idea that this the kind of criteria feels wrong for all of these things and and I suppose this is something we'll get onto later and there's more and more suggestions come into the bot this is something that will will crop up again and again but I think that's where my like uncomfortable nature comes from from having him so low yeah so just to finish that point off he's i don't think xavi is the fifth best player in this list uh it's the but i've 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 accepted the the constraints and the way that the the award generally works and try to pinpoint the areas in which you usually put yourself into contention for them and he just falls down a little bit as i say first draft i had him second and that was because i was going with my heart and i was going on a, qu- a measure of quality and i thought this guy's got to be second but as I started to work the list out, he dropped down a little bit. But into number four is uh, is Thierry Henry. Now, 
We spoke about Henri in March with Miguel Delaney in our Premier League Hall of Fame podcast, which if you haven't heard, I'd implore you to go and check. And I do so because it's great, obviously, but also because I'm not looking to recover old ground because those who have heard it probably won't want to listen to another five minutes of how Henri was scary. So we'll surmise as he was sensational. He was terrifying if you were coming up against him and your team was, and he felt a little bit inevitable. And he was one of the best players the Premier League has ever seen. And after he'd finished wowing us and terrifying us for Arsenal for a long time, he went to Barca and won a treble for Guardiola, playing off the left-hand side of one of the best club sides in history. So again, we've got the shelf life there to pick from for Thierry Henry. I'd say his window is probably in the 03-04 area. That's when Arsenal went unbeaten. That's when he scored 30 league goals. That's when he won Player of the Year, PFA Player of the Year. And what kind of what kind of works against him, I guess, is that Arsenal and France both ducked out of the Champions League and Euro 2004 at the quarterfinal stage. So he didn't have that huge splash on those two tournaments. But 2004 was weird in football, right? If Porto win the Champions League and Greece win the Euros, that door is wide open for someone like Thierry Henry, playing in one of the strongest leagues in the world, scoring 30 league goals for the season. That, that door is wide open for him to win a Ballon d'Or. And I've seen a lot of people say in retrospect, like that was a mistake, like he should have got one there. I'm not saying necessarily that point, but that's obviously his window. Every player has to have a, a feasible chance of winning it in some area. 0304, that area for Henri, I think probably should have happened. And for, for a player of his, his longevity and his class over such a long time, to only ever come, uh, finished second to Pavel Nedved in 2003. He was also really, really good, Nedved. If Nedved hadn't won an award that year, Nedved would be someone high up my things, people that should have won an award list. So I have less issues with that. Shevchenko, again, like, you know, who who won in 2004, was, you know, a world-class striker. And he beat out Deco and Ronaldinho the year that Henri came fourth. I mean, if you look at the rest of that list, it is full-on chaos. Theodora Zagarakis coming in fifth, you know, <laughs> and Charisteas coming in 11th. But, you know... Well, it's based on Euro 2004, isn't it, that one? Yeah, but if trophies count so much, then it's hard to argue with that, right? This is... This is a different, well, the same argument, I guess, but it depends where trophies sit in your list of things that are, you know, valued. And it goes on to your point about what Arsene Wenger said about Henri, right? Yeah, Arsene Wenger is adamant that Thierry Henry should have should have won that award uh, in 2004 because his Arsenal team won something. And uh, many of the others that were, that were in contention for that sort of uh, the, the award and for the other awards that were quite similar at the time, there was like a World Player of the Year run by FIFA and things like that. You know, some people won that award and Henri didn't win any of those either. And Wenger was quite critical of that. And what he said was that because his Arsenal team won trophies, Henri should have been in contention. So direct opposition there to, uh, to, to what we tend to say, which is that shouldn't be the be all and end all. It's hypocritical to say that. You know, an individual award can be decided by a team's performance when you are only one eleventh of a team. Um, but Henri, over that two-year period, I'm surprised he won. He won no sort of global in, uh, individual awards, given that the Premier League was so strong. He absolutely smashed it to pieces. And uh, 2004 was such a strange year with with uh, with the way. Porto won the Champions League, Greece won the Euros. That's like Valencia even won La Liga that year. Like all of your excuses to to go for a Real Madrid, a Barcelona, a a whatever player, like they're all gone at that point. And and Henri still didn't win it. And it surprised me. Yeah, I was quite lucky in that era because I was kind of breaking through and and I got my first journalism job around that time. And one of my first jobs actually was covering Arsenal. Um, So I saw a lot of Thierry Henry at Highbury. 
And at the time, I don't think I really totally appreciated what I was seeing. I don't think that might have been the case for quite a few people of my age. I think that you don't really realise what you're witnessing because you don't really know much different at that point. But um, people older than me would always crow about how good it was and how amazing it was what we were seeing in those moments. And in my head now, I, I do have those standout moments when I think about you know some of the performances I saw. Really, I think of Henri and the pace and uh, the trickery and the way he was able to combine those two things to one, get at players and two, also get away from the players to score goals and the type of finishes that he was able to produce, particularly in that period that Sam's talking about and the Invincibles and all the rest of it. That team wouldn't have been as good. I mean, you could say Vieira was possibly as important, but it was Thierry Henry that was kind of the decisive. maker. Yeah, exactly. He was decisive in, in kind of deciding the results, if you like. So um Henri was crucial and he was really unlucky not to win it now I think he won uh, won the league was unbeaten got a uh, footballer of the year he won pretty much everything he possibly could apart from this one which he was overlooked by France football which is pretty uh <laughs> <laughs> seems just pretty weird to me do you think it's just because France were rubbish? At, well, they're they knocked, knocked out by Greece at, at, at the Euros. Do you think the French were just like, oh, we've been let down by our players? You know, was that was that part of it? You know, because that's how we felt in England sometimes. And I was always qu- quite quick to criticise our own because the, the players, the golden generation, were not living up to our expectations. I wonder if that was genuinely part of it. I mean, you're only human if that does play a part. I mean, I don't know how much loyalty there is from countrymen when it comes to to this award particularly i mean for me personally i've never paid particular attention to um worrying about who wins this award in the build-up to it it's kind of just been something that i've just kept an eye on and and just kind of gone with it and, and accepted whoever the winner is um but i guess if there had been a time when maybe david beckham should have won it or something like that then i, I would have cared more and you would expect there to be a pull for your your own player to to get that award but I don't think that seems to really be the case with Henri which is a strange one uh, but yeah it's not quite like Eurovision it's not like everyone's voting <laughs> for their own countrymen maybe they should <laughs> maybe that's maybe that's wrong. it well no but I think it works both ways right so you're right Dean and if you feel a particular loyalty to a player then obviously you want you know them to win it but there's also exactly what Sam's saying is that if you feel like on an international level, the players that have performed on a club level have let you down, then there's more likelihood that France football are going to be like, nah, we're not giving it to the French team because they don't deserve it because of, you know, they haven't turned up for us at this tournament. I can see how that might play a part. A lot of people, Sam, will say that Thierry Henry is the best player in this list and you've put him fourth. And that in itself is probably a talking point. Yeah, I mean this, this this ranking is not it's not a ranking of these players' quality, and uh, I don't think people will say that he's the best player in this list, man. <laughs> I don't think so. I I think there will be people that do. I'm not I'm not I'm not suggesting you know for one minute that there will be no debate around uh, who you've put into what positions. This is this is what the rank squad live for. But I, I'm interested now because you've obviously put two unbelievably talented footballers at four and five. You'd expect that everyone on this list is going to be exceptionally talented at some point so I, I guess the natural move is to, to move on to number three yeah, I mean they're all brilliant mate <laughs> they're all brilliant um, we're talking about players that should have won a Ballon d'Or which is the best player in the world so they're all brilliant number three is Frank Ribéry Frank Ribéry had Ooh. again a, li- a little spell a three-year spell where he was just irrepressible and we're talking from about 2011 to 2014 is his window obviously long career at the top level anyway um Excellent for Bayern Munich over a long, long spell. 
there's often you see that weird picture of him in a in the Turkish Super League, played for Galatasaray randomly. Yeah, played for Galatasaray. It's like it's one of those things that people don't realize. Frank Ravery once played for Galatasaray. Super weird, super old photo, always rocks your brain. But anyway, he's at Fiorentina now. And he's the only player in this list. Let me just double, triple, one hundred percent check. Uh, yeah, they're both. So he's he's the only player that you could possibly consider to be still even remotely close to their prime because injuries injuries aside, like he's been pretty good for Fiorentina this season. Uh, he and Chiesa as a partnership. Yeah, Jackson Jack hasn't shut up about it to be honest with you. So uh, he's been pretty good. Um, but in two thousand and eleven to fourteen was his kind of that was his jam and. People have a big issue with Ribery not winning the Ballon d'Or in 2013 because he had a ridiculous Uber 2013. Won the Bundesliga, the German Cup, the Champions League, the UEFA Super Cup and the Club World Cup. So he got five trophies and he said, I won everything with the team and individually. Ronaldo won nothing. And he says that I feel I had earned this award. It is all politics. And the reason he has said this, for those that don't know, is because in 2013, there was a slightly fishy, quite strange voting extension granted to the Ballon d'Or at the end of the year, which allowed people to take into account Cristiano Ronaldo's hat-trick against Sweden, which got Portugal to the World Cup 2014 via a playoff. Now that extent was quite a good hat. It was unbelievable. Like it was a sensational performance. It really was. And we talked about it in our Ronaldo Messi episode. I'm not doubting that for one second. But Ribery was probably rightly quite annoyed about that. And that's why people go sort of look at this and with retrospect and go, oh, I mean, that is that is a little bit strange and very tough on Ribery. Um just calculating his goals and assists for those three seasons that I've mentioned: 11, 12, 17 goals, 27 assists. 12, 13, 11, and 23, and then 13, 14, 16, and 15. Now, he had some injury problems before and after that period, but that was when he was fit. And he was he was a monster. Like, he was an absolute monster, a wing wizard. And so, so good, so difficult to handle, so quick, so agile, so dangerous in the box, and so potent as well. And when you put together a, a five-trophy season, and it was that year that he basically put together 40 combined goals and assists, I have to say it's a bit tough on him. Yeah, no, I think that's perfectly reasonable. That that year gets brought up a lot. There's there's always two years that people bring up when they're talking about stolen Ballon d'Ors. One of them is Ribery season that year, and the other one is Wesley Snyder's. And and people always always talk about these two things, and there's a reason for that. You know, whether they're rightly or wrongly taken away from them, the fact that that conversation even takes place shows you that there was something in the fact that perhaps Ribery should have won. What I would raise you, Sam, is that Ribery is often talked about in the same breath as his Bayern Munich partner, Arjen Robben, who hasn't featured in this list, who arguably had as successful, as long a career, you know, at bigger clubs, you'd argue, perhaps, and scored goals, performed for all of them, did it in the Premier League, did it in La Liga, did it in the Bundesliga, you know, there's maybe an argument that if you're going to include Ribery, maybe you should include Robin as well. Yeah. So when I was drafting the list, I had Robin in the sort of yeah, kind of honourable mention six to seven area. And I, I, I tossed his name around a bit in my head and I couldn't quite bring myself to truly argue the case. Well, one thing I, I really wanted to do was present five strong cases that I, I really believe in and can argue. Otherwise, the list kind of feels a little bit weaker around the edges and we waste our time. And Robin scored a hell of a lot of goals and put together a decade of, of serious success at Bayern and was, of course, part of the same team. Of course, won those same trophies as Ribery. 
But what I found myself thinking with Robin was the in, the injuries were even arguably even worse for him, or at least Chelsea and Real Madrid. He didn't really ever show his best form consistently because of the injuries, and it was only it was only at Bayern, and even then he had his problems. I know Ribery did too, but Robin's felt a bit worse. And if I couldn't say if I couldn't feel comfortable with the idea that Robin should have won the 2013 Ballon d'Or when that was his clear window, because I think Ribéry should have won it instead, I found the case for Robin weakening. So it was almost the case of one or the other. And I believe Ribéry was better, so I put him in and I left Robin out. It was criminal, really, that Ribéry didn't get this award, wasn't it? I mean, when you think about it and what he did achieve in, in 2013, particularly, um, it's just crazy. And there was actually an interview with Ribéry a couple of years back and it was very similar to what we were just talking about with Thierry Henry, actually. He said he felt like the people in his own country weren't rooting for him to win it. And he couldn't understand it. He couldn't understand how you could not, how you could prefer Messi or Ronaldo to win that award and be French. Like, it's kind of, it's very similar to what we were just talking about. Um and if you did what well, Ribery has a very complicated relationship with the with the French national team as well, doesn't it? So oh, I don't absolutely. Know, I don't know how much of an impact that makes on this sort of thing. Yeah, but it's interesting that he, you know he's raised that himself, and it's something that clearly irks him all this time on. He has I'm not sure he's ever going to get over it by the sound of it. Um, I'm watching him from 2013. He's kind of the player that Eden Hazard should become right now. He's the way he weaves between players. The way he uses his body, the strength he has on the ball, the trickery, his change of direction, even the kind of balance shifts that he has, um, mm. they're insane. And, you know, Hazard's obviously like very, very top tier player, but I feel, still feel that like there's always been similarities for me between these two. And I'm sure Hazard himself has, has recognised that there are qualities in, in Ribéry that he has. And I don't think he's fully brought them out yet, particularly in consistent end product. And I think that that 2013 season was when we we really saw the very best of, of Ribéry. Um, probably didn't have the same uh, output as, as Ronaldo and Messi. That, that's probably fair to say. But I would argue that on the flip side of that, his goals and assists always seemed to really matter. And that's probably what should have swayed the decision-making a bit more than just how many he, he'd managed to get in terms of assists and goals. Look, maybe he was too much of a team player. You know, if you're talking about an individual award, maybe he would track back too much and get involved in the press too much. Maybe that's gone against him in the end. I don't know. But um, he was an individual genius. So to, to have had the creativity that he had and to have achieved what he did and not get this award just seems absolutely absurd, really. Interesting comparison you make there between he and Hazard. I'd never really considered that or clocked that in my mind, but they are very similar. Very, very similar players. Yeah. I like it a lot. With Hazard, I think that if you do, you know, I'd actually recommend anyone flips back to that 2013 season on YouTube and flips through Ribery's um, highlights reel because, honestly, his movement is, you would almost think it's Eden Hazard, the way that he moves with the ball and the, the, just, the kind of positions he finds himself in the way he beats players the the kind of cutbacks he makes the crosses even some of the goals he scores um there are so many comparisons and i think that i really hope that actually hazard can replicate that that kind of form in, in the couple of next seasons even if you don't just look at ribery go back to that 2013 title winning side for bayern uh when i at the end of the uh, 29th treble winning side given the uh, given the credit they deserve yeah <laughs> i mean um treble winning side yeah they at the end of the end of last year i did a top 10 teams of the decade uh for br and uh, i put bayern the bayern side of 2013 led by jupp heinkus is the second best side of the decade they were 
about almost as tactically perfect as you could possibly be. They were so disciplined, so dominant, so aggressive, so well drilled. All of these players like Robin and Ribery and Muller, they were all in their prime. Schweinsteiger, Javi Martinez, it's the best we've seen. That entire team was unbelievable. And to be honest with you, yeah. it, 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 as I've said with Robin, he was he was definitely a, a factor in this kind of award. Although Robin actually has taken the opposite, um, he's taken the opposite tactic in the media. He's very often ruled himself out of the Ballon d'Or stakes at the earliest opportunity. <laughs> Rather than Reaper, he's like, well, "Why didn't you vote for me?" Robin's like, "No, no, no, no! You should vote for Ronaldo. He's definitely better than me." <laughs> like, I don't really, I don't really understand the tactic there because it doesn't work, Robin. Yeah, I think that. This one, this one, I think maybe would be highest for me. Not necessarily in terms of you know best players. I don't think Van Rubri is the best player on this list, but I think this is number one in that I genuinely believe he should have won it this year. I think what irks me about the Ballon d'Or is that sometimes when you know when Luka Modric won it, it was all about trophies and it was all about what they'd won uh, in a trophy hall to make that valuable. But the year after, when Rafael Varane won the World Cup and the Champions League, it was no longer about trophies. It was about individual accolades. And the problem is that the parameters seem to shift every year. It's, you know, some years it's like, well, they won all these trophies, so therefore they must win the Ballon d'Or. And another year it's, oh, well, it's individual moments that matter most. And, you know, Ribéry had an unbelievable couple of years, like you say, that culminated in the treble. And I just can't look past the fact that he deserved the Ballon d'Or this year. And, you know, a lot of people will talk about other players. And, you know, they mentioned, like you say, Xavi, Thierry Henry, those players who I, you know, thought might be higher up this list. But once you get to Ribéry and you really think about how, you know, how good he was in those years and what he won, then it becomes very difficult to look past him for me. Yeah, I think if we were ranking the biggest Ballon d'Or robber- uh, robberies, then then Ribéry, geez, that's a mouthful, is top. Uh, but as we, as we intro at the top... You know, this is um, not specifically about this one season. Obviously, I've pinpointed areas because you have to be in contention to be on this list. But um, single season-wise, robbery-wise, then Ribery is 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 right there. Uh, but as a this is as a more general theme, I've started him into third, and I'll go into second, and I'll, I'll sort of hammer that point home because it's second is Paolo Maldini, and now Maldini is a little bit a touch before my time to a point, although I've caught up on him since and my dad talked about him constantly so I couldn't really get away from it. And I spent Saturday watching Maldini. It was a good Saturday, I must say. A self-isolation Saturdays go, just watching Maldini is pretty good. Um, some of you know and some of you won't, uh, but he was obviously an incredible defender, probably held up Held up as one of the best ever, maybe the best defender in history, and I think it's probably about fair. One of the cleanest tacklers you'll see, and at the time, just kind of looked like he was playing on fast forward compared to everybody else. So he had this incredible, like loping long stride as he galloped past players. He used to knock the ball around people and just run twenty yards, and he was pretty tall but really fast. Played in tight areas, left back, centre back, no problem. He and Paul McGrath were the two defenders my dad tried to get me to emulate as a kid. And the reason Maldini ranks so highly in this list is, well, first of all, he was incredible. If you're being held up as one of the greatest defenders ever, potentially the greatest, and you didn't win a Ballon d'Or, there may be a slight issue there. But other than that, Maldini's peak was like 20 years. Like He, he played two decades, more or less, at the very top level. To contextualise that, he played in a Milan defence in 1988 
that won the title and conceded 14 goals that year. 14 in 1988. And then in 2007, he lifted the Champions League trophy as captain of Milan, aged 38. I mean, God, that is absolutely insane. Now, throughout that period, yeah. he didn't just he didn't peak at 18 and peak again at 38. He was he was consistently excellent. There may have been a dip of a couple of years in there as Milan went through a few changes. But in 1994, he won the Champions League and he was brilliant at the World Cup. Now, Baggio and Stoichkov finished ahead of him that year. And 1994 is outside of our turn of the century um, specification. So we'll leave Damn that it. one aside. But 2003, third in the voting behind Henri and Nedved. You know, captains Milan to the Champions League final that year. Clean sheet, got man of the match. Like this, this is a guy who played two decades at the top level. Was recognised as the best. Changed the game so uh, a little bit in terms of in terms of how maybe how people view defenders. And the window for him to win this award was huge. And I might genuinely count him as the most unlucky not to win one. Yeah, I think it's fair enough. That stat you always bring up, you brought up about them conceding 14 goals always reminds me of my favourite ever football fact, which is that in, I think it was 96, Milan won the trophy having scored 36 goals, whilst Atalanta and Bologna both got relegated having scored 35. (laughs) Defence wins championships, baby. Defence wins championships. I just think is the most incredible statistic that's maybe ever happened. Yeah, absolutely ridiculous. I mean, look, Maldini shared shared the defensive line with some awesome, with some other incredible names, uh, Costa Curta, Nesta, and Baresi in different time periods because this guy spanned <laughs> so long. He was able to count so many as as partners. So he, it's not like he was a one man defensive wall. Although maybe there were some games when it did genuinely feel like that. Uh, but maybe we're maybe we're tipping ourselves into the defenders don't get the respect they deserve. Obviously, Cannavaro won it in 2006 after Italy won the World Cup. But, you know, success stories for defenders have been few and far between. Virgil van Dijk came very, very close last year within about 20 votes of Messi, I think it was. So it was really, really close. But uh, maybe Maldini, maybe we're waking up to that defensive element and Maldini kind of suffered because you would say, you know, he wasn't involved in that 2006 World Cup win. So he didn't have that under his belt. That probably counts against him a little bit. Maybe he was just a little bit unfortunate with the timing. We weren't ready in 2003 to acknowledge that a defender might be the best. But in 2006, we were. Um, So I do feel I do feel for him a little bit. And it does surprise me looking back at such a glittering and illustrious and long career it's kind of career that people would kill for right now uh, that he didn't win it. Dean, you probably watch more Maldini of any of us. Yeah. Well, there was a joke actually among football reporters in Italy um, that when they used to go and do their player ratings at games, they'd kind of type out the, the names of the starting 11 and just put an eight next to Maldini straight away because he was never going to play any worse than that. Like, unless he was injured or <laughs> ill, he was getting an eight out of 10 um, at least. <laughs> That's how good he was. And Sam's talking about his tackling. And, and the thing is, he didn't even really have to tackle half the time because his reading of the game was so good, he would actually just take it off them he wouldn't even have to actually tackle them not sure to go down as a tackling stat anymore he was the quintessential Milan player to be honest and certainly somebody they could do with over the last few years the last I I do remember seeing him play. I went to the semi-final of the Champions League in 2007. Man United played AC Milan. I think he actually got injured in that game, if I remember rightly. I think in the Old Trafford game, uh, Maldini came off injured. He was playing centre-back by then because uh, he transferred from being a full-back, one of probably the best full-back in history, to playing as one of the best centre-backs uh, in history. And um, But yeah, United actually, they won the first leg and then obviously lost the second leg and, and Milan went on to, to win the final, as Sam talked about. Yeah, um, but yeah, he was just an unbelievable player over 20 years. 
I think pretty much anyone that's ever played alongside him or played against him or watched him like properly puts him in their greatest 11 of all time. So it does seem very strange that pretty much every person would do that, yet he was never actually crowned the greatest player of his era. Just to round off Maldini, I mean, so my dad told me about Maldini and uh, talked to me about Maldini and, and, and showed me clips of Maldini in the 90s. And there'll be, for those that have, you know, never watched him play and maybe have just been thinking about just just get on with it, like I don't know this guy, he's too old or whatever. Think about... Think about the defender that you right now hold in the highest regard. It might be Van Dijk, it might be Sergio Ramos, it might be Carlos Puyol, it might be Cannavaro. And think about the defender that you will tell your kids about when you have them. Maldini was better than that person, like by a distance. I guess, I mean, that it's difficult to argue with that really, Sam, which leads me on to, to ask who you've placed above him as numero uno. I mean, you've got you've got to know at this point, uh, you've got to have guessed it. Uh, it's Andres Iniesta. Um or Don Andres, as uh, as basically Spain call him ever since his World Cup winning goal. And uh, the man who just received the most incredible amount of, you know, rounds of standing ovations from, from opposing fans just because of the moment that he delivered, which was the World Cup winning goal, the first in Spain's history in 2010. So a lot of the statements that we applied to Xavi at rank five apply to Iniesta, one of the best central midfielders ever. One of the best midfielders to watch ever. He was more enterprising, probably, of the two. More of a dribbler. Uh, stationed further forward. Played off the left quite a lot for Spain. Uh, played in the centre as well for Barcelona and, some, and sometimes for Spain. Uh, he could do. He could play four different positions and he would, he would be an 8 out of 10. And he was just a beautiful watch. Uh, such a lovely dribbler. Such a, such a creative player. And you can say a lot of that about Xavi. But as I said without the signature moments, whereas Iniesta obviously has the World Cup final goal, which is which is huge. Like we do judge this award on on those kind of moments, those peaks. And that is that is an incredible moment. He had the goal against Chelsea uh, to reach the Champions League final. Uh, they obviously went on in the, in the 93rd minute. He scored from distance and put Chelsea out in the semi-final. They went on to beat Man United in that final. And Rooney labelled him the best player in the world after that final. And it goes back to, again to what Dean was talking about earlier, how demoralising it was to try and get the ball off Andres Iniesta and Xavi when you are yourself an elite footballer and you can't get anywhere near it. Like it's just It must make you reevaluate your entire life. So for Iniesta, again, a long career at the top. Um, from about 2007 onwards, he was one of the only shining lights during the end of the very quite disastrous Frank Rijkaard era where they had an unbelievable amount of talent and everything went wrong. He was still impressing. He moved into his prime as Barcelona did. And you're looking at 09 and 10. You're looking at that World Cup winning goal. You're looking at that semi-final performance. Over, He scored so many good goals and so many huge performances for Spain over the period in which they won you know, three straight international trophies. I think you stop for Iniesta at about 2011, 2012, as you do for a lot of other people, because Messi went crazy and scored 90 plus goals that year. But Iniesta really did have, he had he had the goods, he had the level, he had the consistency, and he had the moments, I think, to win this award. Yeah, I, I, it was difficult to disagree. You look at that Chelsea moment, obviously, you look at the winning goal in the World Cup. I mean, all of those different things that seem to have set him apart and yet, I struggle a little bit with this. You know, you know how much I love Iniesta. My, you know, one of my favourite players of all time. But is it not the same argument that you make for? Is it not the same argument you make for Neymar right at the beginning? He's just unlucky to live in the same era as Ronaldo and Messi. How, 
I, I struggle a kind of little bit with this in terms of where where it fits. Well, because so I think that from 2012, from 2011 or 2012, Messi Ronaldo takeover. It's not until 2012 that Messi and Ronaldo go absolutely mad. I did a I did a piece. Um, a couple of weeks ago, trying to figure out when the world's best forwards hit their absolute prime for, yeah. Ble- for Bleacher Report, and it was in it was the moment I picked for Messi and Ronaldo was in 2012. Obviously, for Messi, when he scores 90 plus goals, that's when he's going to go mad. And Ronaldo, I think, was at his athletic and and diverse best in 2012. Up until that point, they're obviously very good. They've won the last four Ballon d'Ors up to 28 uh, 2008, but I don't think it's quite as clear cut as it became from 2012 onwards, which is you know, kind of why, kind of why Iniesta ends up above Ribery here because Ribery falls into that 2012 onwards bracket, whereas Iniesta, like, had a claim to be the best player in the world in 2009, 2010. Rooney even said it, and he had that defining moment in the 2010 World Cup final that yeah. would generally qualify a player for that. So it's it's a weird it's a weird kind of it's a weird way of looking at almost like the calendar or the deck or the decade, but it because he fought because his best moments fall before Messi truly became a monster and Ronaldo hit his absolute peak I think there's a fair argument for it whereas the others they do suffer because they're post 2012 fair play that's a very very good response I do think though he is an example of how playing for the team deprives you of the greatest individual accolades even though he has had a moment which should mean he stood out um, I totally agree with Sam on that um I do think it's embarrassing that he never won it um I think it's strange in the list to have Xavi at five and Iniesta at one when so much of what they achieve goes hand in hand but in terms of this individual award he probably is lifted above him just because he um, just had that edge like Sam was talking about he was definitely um, a casualty of of the Messi Ronaldo competition and the way that it was all starting to unravel there Um, and they've left behind obviously so many casualties since then but I'd I'd say he was probably one of the first that, that really felt the impact of that um, of course, of course, he should have won this award. He, he wasn't just the best footballer in the world for a year. He was probably the best technician of a football for, I don't know, five, six years. I, who, who would you, who have you ever seen in your life that could control a football, a football match like Iniesta could with Xavi? You just won't see it. Like I don't know when we'll ever see a midfield pairing that can can dominate football matches like those two could. And they both had such defined roles and such qualities that bounced off each other that were just remarkable. Um, I guess typically he wasn't the type that made headlines and and that's what people would argue as to why he never got this award. But we have to say the fact he was never recognised and his name never goes alongside this trophy is pretty crazy. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. I mean, that is it. That year is it. If he was going to win it, it was 2010, right? That was the moment he won all (laughs) of the things that Messi did at club level, plus a World Cup where he scored the winner in the World Cup final, if there was going to be a moment. By, by these standards, yeah, by these standards, by 2018, 19, 20 standards, that is enough to win it. Yeah, I agree. hundred yeah, percent. And I think that, you know, I keep coming back to this, but it's where the, the different parameters seem to change every year. And, and that makes it difficult to swallow this. That You know, that year, Iniesta should have won the award ahead of Messi. Let's be frank about it. If, if you do everything that he's done at club level and you score the winning goal in a World Cup final, that's it. Like, there shouldn't be another argument. I was him. I would just be telling people I did win it and hope they don't look it up. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be like, oh, that was mine. Going back to what you said, Sam, earlier though, about um, about Robin and Ribery, right? 
the this goes back to that when it when Messi won it, Iniesta obviously was really gracious and lovely and was like, yeah, he deserves to win. He's the best player in the world, and and it carried on kind of under that mantle. Yeah, well, Iniesta, Iniesta was just super nice, wasn't he? Maybe he was. Maybe he was too nice. I mean, maybe he was too nice. Look, ultimately, like so, you know, Dean and I went to the Ballon d'Or ceremony uh, in December, and I asked Van Dijk if he thought that saying that Messi should win the Ballon d'Or. Like you know, did that cost him? Because well, it literally did because he lost by twenty or twenty or so votes. So if Van Dyke says Messi should win it, that is probably going to sway at least twenty people to vote for Messi, right? If you are if you were on the fence, so it probably cost him the Ballon d'Or. So the you have to be more bullish in these in these scenarios, and you have to you have to fly your own flag in order to unless you're Messi, Ronaldo that is, although Ronaldo does it anyway. But you if you're one of the underdogs, if you're one of the guys looking to to break the mold here of the of the ten years of Messi and Ronaldo, you've got to be a bit more up your own ass to try and get yourself into this conversation. And Iniesta is not that player. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't use that as a stick to beat him with, but it, cause it, cause it's not fair, but it is potentially a reason why he didn't feature more heavily in the conversation and didn't garner more of the votes. There's a lesson to be learned here, lads. I, I think like what Sam's saying in terms of bigging yourself up, I reckon we need to um, reflect that in our podcast. Should we just start saying we are the best football c- we are the best football podcast in the world. Yeah, I think we could probably just, let's just start on. saying it. Let's See just, how we go. I, I, I mean, I think we probably are. I think we are. So let's just start saying it, and then we'll start getting awards for it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, there we are. We've we've learned something. I've got a suggestion. I like suggestions at the end of this. Having complained about how the parameters work for ages, and basically decided that players who were maybe more team players or you know long long lasting footballers who never quite got the recognition they deserved on this kind of stage i've decided that the ballon d'or should introduce like a lifetime achievement award take a couple of notes from you know some of their pals at the academy and the oscars and the baftas and all of those things and but basically they should only ever award it to someone who didn't win the ballon d'or trophy during their career. So Buffon gets it. Buffon wins this. Francesco Totti wins this, which is the big one for me. Francesco Totti, 307 goals in 785 appearances in 25 years at Roma. <laughs> 25 seasons yeah. at Roma. Mm. That, that's ludicrous. Francesco Totti was coveted by all of the world's biggest clubs constantly for sort of 10 years and decided to stay at his hometown club. It cost him in terms of winning trophies. Obviously, he has the one Scudetto to his name, which he basically dragged Roma to by himself. Um, but everybody loves Totti. This is the thing. You know, even one of my favorite story about Francesco Totti is that on his last eternal derby against Lazio, the Lazio fans were like, from your eternal enemy, respect. I was like, that'll do. Thanks very much. You don't need to like me. I'm, I'm I'm the captain and symbol of your eternal enemies. I don't expect you to like me. Yeah. But to earn the respect of a fan group like the Lazio or Dusabili, you know, in that kind of moment is is special. And I think that given Totti's reputation in the game, given that everybody loves him, imagine how lovely that would be for him to win an award of this game, you know, a lifetime achievement award in services to football organized by the Ballon d'Or. And I, I think I'm onto something here. I'm potentially going to try and sell this idea to them. Yeah, um, I like it. But like even like players like on, on a kind of not lower level, but a, a slightly smaller scale, like a Chabi Alonso. Chabi Alonso never had a chance of winning the Ballon d'Or, mm. but he was unbelievable for like 10 years. Yeah. He was absolutely yeah. incredible as a footballer for 10 years. Sergio Busquets, you know, players that don't get the love they deserve because they are not necessarily those big moment players. 
and players that didn't win trophies because of loyalty as opposed to, you know, not being good enough should be prime ambassadors for the game. And, you know, loyalty should be something we cherish, that we respect, that we love. And we sort of hit players for it. Totti got punished, if you will, Mm. for staying at his boyhood club and, and remaining at a club that he loved. And we should never do that because that's something that should be admired and appreciated. And and just think that a, an award like this would do wonders for the Ballon d'Or and it would allow us to celebrate some of these legends of the game who never quite got the Ballon d'Ors that perhaps they deserved or perhaps they, you know, their services to a club or football in general was was more than what is represented by this award. I like it. I like, if you're going to throw Busquets in there, and that's a fair shout, I would also then in turn throw Philip Larmin, who oh, absolutely. played three positions, left back, right back, and then later just central midfield and dominated that for a, for a spell. I mean, he won the trophy, sure, but he was never going to be in contention. And uh, it's similar vein to Busquets, unbelievably integral to some of the best sides we've seen. World Cup winner, Czech treble winner, never had a chance, but Lam is, Lam is in that conversation. I think... Uh, goalkeepers are really tough in this because Buffon Buffon has had a couple of years where it could have happened like he won the World Cup in uh, 2006 he was brilliant Um, he won the title that year with Juve but it was taken off them due to Calciopoli I would say that you can't really give give a guy who was involved in a scandal knowingly or unknowingly the Ballon d'Or, but they gave it to Cannavaro, who was involved in that scandal. <laughs> just and as then much. Moved, he just yeah. moved to Real Madrid in the summer and, yeah. and just left. Um, so that doesn't really count against him. And then again in 2017, Buffon at Juve was brilliant. And had they won the Champions League, you never know with that. You know, you never know. They didn't concede a home Champions League goal until the semi-finals, and that was Mbappe. Uh, he was incredible that year. So there's a few names that you can chuck into that conversation there, which is very interesting. They weren't going to make my top five because I couldn't. I couldn't hand on heart present that case to you guys and go, this should have happened. But there's another tier down there, the guys we're talking about now, who were very interesting cases. And the Lifetime Academy-style award it is potentially a way to get Buffon, Casillas, Lam, Busquets when they finish. Get those guys the recognition they deserve, Tossi included as well. Absolutely. Right. There is one thing left to do on today's show. Thank you for that ranking as ever, Sam. I'm going to throw this to Stu Holden. Thank you, Stu. That does mean, Sam, that it's time for the nonsense rankings. What have you got for us? Yeah, first nonsense for a while. We just felt that, you know, the, the serious nature of some of the, the rankings and topics we've covered over the last few weeks, it would be a bit, it'd be a bit, um, yeah, just, just a, it wouldn't feel right to, to go from ranking Messi and Ronaldo in every category to, hey, guess what's getting me through quarantine by Sam Tai. But we're going to do that this week because we've got the time. So these are the three things that so far have got me through the self-isolation and quarantine regime that we are currently in. The three reasons that I am surviving. And at three is pepper jack cheese flavoured mini cheddars. Now, they may not be an entirely global thing. So they are, it's a packet of crisps or like little mini biscuits that are cheese flavoured. You can Google them and everyone in England and Europe will know what they are. They do exactly what they said on the tin, mini cheddars. They are small cheddar flavoured biscuits. They are, and they are beautiful. The originals are beautiful. They've stood the test of time. They've been around for as long as Paolo Maldini, maybe even longer, and they are brilliant. But I don't know if it was coincidence or not, but the creators of this particular crisp have decided to use the self-isolation period to introduce new, different flavors. Obviously, we've seen a few in the past. We've seen barbecue-style ones and stuff, but they've 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 brought they've broadened their horizons into different cheeses. They've gone 
outside the box of cheddar. Mm. And in particular, the pepper jack ones are amazing. So I've been eating like two bags a day. And recently my supermarket ran out of those and I threw a little bit of a tantrum. uh, But I did manage to find some blue cheese variants, which thankfully taste nothing like blue cheese. They're actually quite nice. I'll have to get some of these. But uh, mini cheddars, yeah, mini cheddars getting me through it. Mm. Uh, In at number two of things that are getting me through quarantine is the fact that Dean is handling it much worse than I am. And that makes me feel much better about myself. (laughs) Um, Because Dean, if you guys don't know, has been gambling on virtual greyhounds. And um, that is, if ever ever there's a cry for help, then that is quite well, actually. I haven't lost it. Yeah, Dean's about 600 pounds up. Honestly, I've earned quite a few good out of this. (laughs) He texts us a picture at six in the morning. That was was a moment. It was a picture of, of the virtual greyhound race, and the text that he'd included was just, come on, number three. Listen, <laughs> when you've got a two-year-old, he wants to watch Peppa Good. Pig at 6am, and you're sat there on the sofa with nothing else to do, and suddenly you realise you can bet on virtual greyhounds, you'll realise how luring that is and how enticing it can be. <laughs> I, I, I'm into it. I'm into it. Anything to, whatever gets you through the days, the Lighthouse family once sang. And, and talking about Sam, what's in it one? Yeah. Yeah, in at number one, and this is an actual serious one, an, an actual activity, uh, is a game called Overcooked. And it's on the PlayStation Store and the Xbox Store. It's oh. our colleague Nick is uh, has turned me on to this one. And it, the reason it works so well is because it is cooperative. So you can play it with your your significant other. If you're if you're in the house and, and your, your girlfriend or fiance or, or boyfriend is, is like is is game inclined, then this is a really decent co-op games. And to be honest, there aren't enough of those grand schemes. So many games nowadays are geared towards like a really good single player campaign. And then obviously you 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 can you can go online and play multiplayer, but that's that's online one v one or they add downloadable content to it. There aren't that many games that are that have just been designed like they were in the nineties and the early two thousands where two friends can sit alongside each other and genuinely cooperate. So Overcooked is essentially you trying to make dishes in the kitchen. You are with a partner and you are trying to chop up dough and and put pizzas in the oven. You are trying to make burritos. 10 different things are happening at once. You can set fire to the kitchen. You can miss orders and you have to rack up the right amount of score, the right amount of orders to get through. It can be a little bit stressful. It may or may not break your relationship. I can't be held responsible for that if it does. But if there are two of you and you fancy quite an intense but quite a fun game, I would go for Overcooked. It's really good. If I'm not mistaken, this is called Divorce Kitchen or nicknamed Divorce Kitchen in in some Asian countries, Sam. (laughs) Yes, that's why I said I can't be held responsible for any potential splits. You are right, though, as in there are no good co-op player games for sitting next to each other anymore. Me and my brother were were looking at this the other day and there just aren't any. They, They don't exist anymore. Actual Greyhound race, then have you tried that? <laughs> <laughs> I remember playing Little Big Planet was was very good. Like that you'd be those little sack people and you can like sort of ping each other around and you have to get across like a like a like a two D sort of landscape and that's quite good. But yeah, they're few and far between. And I feel like this is the time when you can really get the enjoyment out of those. So if you can find them, and I have found one for you, give it a go. Well, thank you very much, Sam. Thank you for your tips. Thank you. I will will not be trying the mini cheddars because I'm not a fan of cheese, as you well know. Um, yeah. But also, do you like pizza? I do like pizza. I mean, no, everybody likes pizza. Let's not <laughs> let's not take the mick. Um, but no one quite as much as Dean Jones. And on that bombshell, I am going to call this episode. All that's left me to do is say thank you very much for listening. As ever, we appreciate appreciate you and if you know anyone who is searching for quarantine lockdown content and obsessed with football then you know where to send them thank you very much to sam ty thank you mate cheers thank you very much to dean jones
Jones. Yes, mate. I've been Jack Collins. This has been BR Football Ranks. Make sure you're locked in for all the best football content as ever. We love you. Keep safe. Stay well. Ranks out. <laughs> <laughs>